This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. And to quote one of our panellists today, biblical literacy is likely lower in Australia than at any point since the convict era. In 1960, 90% of homes had a Bible. That's a number hard to conceive today. And yet the legacy of this book, the Bible, for better or worse, is still everywhere to be seen. What do we do about that? Well, our panel may have some ideas. Dorothy Lee is the Stewart Research Professor at the University of Divinity's Trinity College Theological School. As an academic expert, she's written many books on the Gospels, and she's also an Anglican associate priest herself, St Mary's, North Melbourne. Uh, Dorothy Lee, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you, James. Lovely to be here. Well, as I've sort of tried to capture in the introduction, this, this is a strange book you've dedicated your life to studying and what's more its role in society has changed so much over the course of your life how do you reconcile that it's a very good question james i think that society has become much more secular but i also think we've moved away from a assuming what we know the bible means uh, which has propped up um, patriarchy which has propped up colonialism Um, which has propped up a whole series of unjust ways of being because we thought we understood the Bible when, in fact, we never understood how really radical it is. So on the one hand, we've got away from the Bible, and I guess that's bad, but on the other hand, I think we've got away from negative reading of the Bible, which is, to my mind, quite good. But you also know that Christians profess this is a book unlike any other. Yes, that's true. And funnily enough, art can sometimes fill this space. And our second panellist is Glenn Lockery, and he is an amazing painter. He's also a writer, one of his books, Another Time, Another Place, Towards an Australian Church, and he's priest, Anglican priest at St Oswald's in Glen Iris, Melbourne. Uh, Glenn Lockery, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you, James. Great to be here. Well, we heard Dorothy, the Christian uh, cleric, but also academic and tertiary scholar, internationally uh, acclaimed. You're an artist, also acclaimed, but through an entirely different medium. Your expression, you know, comes out in such a different way. I mean, she's at the University of Divinity. Do you somehow try to paint the Bible on the canvas? It sounds like such a silly question, but do you know what I mean? Well, I do. Um, I I guess... From where I stand, I paint, um, as an Aboriginal person, I paint the way I see the Bible, the way I I interpret the Bible in my own particular format, and therefore I attempt to paint the beauty and the wonder and the the truth. I I guess that sometimes I could say that what I do is I paint uh, disturbing images with beautiful colours and disturbing ideas with beautiful colours to get people to think about the Bible, the Aboriginal way of seeing in a more realistic way for them, a way that speaks to them. Well, I suppose there's a lot of good and evil and all sorts of binary opposites in the Bible for you to uh, draw the two together. Yeah, I did a series related to my own family's story and, and we explored some of the key 
passages of the, the New Testament in looking at, you know, the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus all the way through to the crucifixion and looked at them through how those stories might have looked if my particular family and the Aboriginal community around where I came from was used as the, the subject matter for those stories. What answer did you come up with? I think the answer I come up with by painting those stories is that, you know, while the Bible has a universal sense and we tend to take it and melt it down to one particular statement or worldview or way of understanding and interpreting it, it actually is open to the context in which we find ourselves and is able to be rediscovered in a new way in this place we call Australia. Glenn Lockery, thank you very, very much indeed. Well, to a familiar voice, Dr. Meredith Lake, uh, author of The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, uh, and, of course, she's our wonderful companion presenting RN's Soul Search as well. Um, Well, Meredith Lake, you know all about the history of the Bible in Australia as a cultural artefact and and how it lives and lingers still. How so when Christianity is falling off a cliff? Oh, it's such a fascinating story, James, because if you wind back to European colonists, they invaded, they brought their Bible as well as every other artefact of their society as they knew it. And even then, the Bible was a contested thing. It's not like there's ever really been an agreed upon Bible in the history of this place. And so what Glenn was saying about how different contexts, different communities, find different things in this really complex text is really visible, I think, in the history of this country and its people. I mean, just as a few examples, we find convicts even reading the Bible, getting it tattooed onto their bodies. We find moralising clergy who are very unhappy with the way the convicts, you know, navigate their own faith and morality. We find people like Henry Lawson saying, oh, I'm a free thinker, an atheist, but to me, the Bible's true not as a revelation from God, but for its account of the human condition. I mean, there are so many different ways that it's been read and argued and debated um, that I think that's actually been a super dynamic aspect of the history of this place and its people for at least, well, ever since European colonists brought it to this country. So what you're kind of saying is that not thinking about the Bible and thinking about Australian history is the same as not thinking about Australian history and, say, ignoring sheep and gold and wheat, you're missing a huge part of it. Is it as bland as that or are you saying something more special? I mean, I would argue that taking account of the way people make sense of the world in terms of their spirituality is at least as illuminating. But but more than that, I mean, even if you want to talk about the history of sheep and sheep farming in this country, I mean, Jesus is the good shepherd, He lays down his life for the sheep, according to John. And the idea that Europeans bring the sheep as their totem, for example, is bound up with how uh, missionaries communicated the Gospels to Indigenous communities. It's also bound up with the reception of that message by Indigenous communities that were facing the pastoral invasion of their land. So the meaning of the sheep is theological as well as economic. It's, it's important, not just ecological effect as well. Well, that sheep and the ones related to it have killed how many indi- uh, native Australian mammals? We have the worst mammalian extinction rate of any continent on the globe. And the sheep, by our hand, 
that has central role to play in that. If I can just jump in here, I think Meredith is right about the Bible as a contested um, document. On the one hand, it can be seen as going along with colonialism and therefore introducing the destructive sheep and rabbits to destroy the, the local habitat and wildlife. But at the same time, I think the Bible's also been used to challenge precisely that sort of colonialism, that sort of oppression of others because of its stand on, on for example, on the poor and the dispossessed and, and that kind of perspective of the Bible, which goes right through the prophets and in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching, is a, a very, very strong challenge against that kind of colonialist mentality, patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera. And, and last word on this, uh, Reverend Glenn Lockery. Why do you, as an Indigenous man, side yourself with the church that brought the sheep that killed the native species? Ah, that's a very, very good question, and that's one that I've been battling with for 66 years. Um, and it's one that you, you, you work with as an Indigenous person I, I say that I became a Christian because I didn't have any other choice because when I began to begin my journey into my spirituality because of my family's story, which meant that we never talked about our Aboriginality and we didn't have any connection with Aboriginal people, 100% of the local Aboriginal people had been eradicated by 1876. So we you know, assimilated into non-Indigenous society. So I became involved in the church because it was the only place I could explore my spirituality, I guess. The questions that I ask today about the Bible is that while it, it does have some powerful positives, it has also replaced um, for Aboriginal people their traditional culture and ways of seeing and um, mediated those through Western points of view. So I struggle with the intersection of those two things and, and ask the question, how do we begin to think like those that were here 65,000 years ago, many, many years before Jesus, and how do we bring those two things into conversation? Well, much more on this ahead. Even if you've never opened up a Bible before, and you're not religious yourself, you've probably heard of the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And you still probably know they're about the life and death and, as Christians believe, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the fact that so many people only have a vague knowledge of the Bible, Christians included, means that some think it purports to be an eyewitness account of Jesus' crucifixion. But nothing could be further from the truth. The New Testament of the Bible contains more than just the Gospels. It also contains a collection of letters addressed to different communities, and they were all written long after Jesus died. Constant Muse is a professor in the Centre for Religious Studies at Monash University, and he explains to ABC's Philip Clark what actually is in the New Testament of the Bible and, importantly, when it was written. That's right, because the Gospels, these texts which talk about the life of Jesus, mm. we think probably are not really written in their present form until after 70, which was this great 
time of the, the catastrophic destruction of uh, the temple in Jerusalem. But we do have these letters, in particular of Paul, and there are a few other letters as well, and they actually sort of give you insight into the arguments that they were having probably 20 years or so after the death and resurrection, proclaimed resurrection of Jesus. Mm. They're, they're kind of written on the hop. They're addressed to particular communities. And it takes a long time, well, gradually, a number of decades, for them to realize, for various individuals to say, well, we don't know much about Jesus himself. Paul talks about the principle of Christ, but we want to know more. And so we gradually have this production of text. So Paul's letters come before the Gospels then? Oh, indeed. And, and this makes it really very enigmatic and puzzling because he's very steeped in Jewish tradition, but he never knew Jesus personally. So he starts writing letters to believers and so on. Somebody presumably collects these letters. That's uh, right. So, uh, well, so then along come the Gospels. Now, this is interesting. So the Gospels are not, there's no contemporaneous gospel then of the life of Jesus. These are all written much later, are they? How much later? Well, probably not for at least 40, 50 years. We know from the written texts that there's these references to so many more stories that could be told. And I think it's clear that there were many many stories and not always the same because every community sort of twisted the stories in their particular way. So uh, we think that there may have been texts, stories, sayings of Jesus written down which were used by the uh, the evangelists that we have mm. but we don't have that lost original source. That's Professor Constant Muse speaking with uh, Philip Clark on ABC Radio's Nightlife. We'll put a link to their full conversation on uh, the RN God Forbid website. Uh, well, Professor Dorothy Lee, you know, this is challenging for the sceptic, perhaps, because we've already got this, you know, amazing proposition in the New Testament. God gives his only son to die on the cross and he does it for us all. But now we learn, well, you, you now for some of us, that... You know, these documents are second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand. They come from way after the event. You know, it's, doesn't that make it harder to believe the already amazing claims of the book? Well, actually, if, if I can just um, nuance that slightly, I don't entirely agree with the comments that Constant um, makes, although I know Constant is an absolutely wonderful historian. Um, nevertheless, the dating of the Gospels is somewhere between 60 and, and 100. So I wouldn't go too far as to say it's all well after 70. Um, we don't know when Mark's. Mark was the first gospel. We don't know when it was written, but it could be anything between 60 and 75, and that's where most scholars would place it. Um, and the letters of Paul, are, I mean, Paul is, is uh, working in the 50s. It's not that long, actually. And there's no reason to think that, for example, that there weren't eyewitnesses um, also present. Now, Paul himself did not know uh, Jesus, that's for sure. And also Luke is clear that he didn't know Jesus. But, you know, the Gospel of John may well go back to an eyewitness, that is the beloved disciple. 
um, who may or may not have written the actual gospel. So I don't think we should exaggerate the long distance between Jesus and the writing of the gospels. We, we know of other gospels that were written or at least believe that there were other gospels. Uh, there was a, a gospel consisting of sayings of Jesus that was probably circulating in the 40s and have ended up in, in both um, Matthew and Luke's gospels. So I, I think it's possible to overstate that. But doesn't it work the other way, Dorothy? Wasn't the rule that your book could only make it into the gospel if it said that Jesus was resurrected? So if you said that he wasn't, well, the publisher said, sorry, you're not making it into this edition. (laughs) And that gives rise to the prospect or the idea that maybe there is some book out there that said, well, actually, I was there and he, he didn't. The cave wasn't empty. Um, yes, it's very, very interesting that actually because the, the, the uh, emptiness of the tomb is based primarily on the witness of women who were not necessarily considered particularly good witnesses. If anything points to the historicity of, of this event, it's that. Uh, the early church would not have used women if they could have got out of it, but they did present it on the basis of largely of women's testimony and, of course, that, that meant that women had a particularly, I think, more prominent place in the early church than, say, the later church. And I think, I think that there's a strong case to be made that their core picture of Jesus is, in fact, historical. And isn't that interesting, Dr Meredith Lake, that these, um, this debate still fires between Reverend Dr uh, Professor Dorothy Lee and Professor Constant Muse? You know, was the document written 40, 50, 60 years after Christ died? And then with your book, you know, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, we can see how much the book influenced and shaped and divided things even in living memory, perhaps to this day, Yes. Well, the kind of debates I guess you've been raising with Dorothy actually themselves have a, a cultural history. So when colonists bring the Bible with with their ships, with their seeds and their animals and all their guns, their diseases, all those things, it comes in the form of the King James, which is apart from the, the Latin Vulgate version of the Catholic Church, is probably one of the most hegemonic translations of the Bible, one of the most culturally static versions of the Bible throughout history. But when you get to the 19th century, a whole new um, approach kind of seeps down from the academic elite, so to speak, and becomes the dinner table talk of, you know, middle-class Melbourne men or want-to-be intellectuals in downtown Adelaide. And I'm talking about the 1860s, the 1870s, you know, the period right after Darwin's Origin of Species you know, gets a lot of people talking about what are we to make of the stories that we've inherited. And the whole question of what is this set of texts that we've always read in one way or another, that maybe maybe we need to rethink that and what are we going to do with the new possibilities for how we understand Jesus, how we understand his mission, the community that grew up around him that staked so much on their claim that he had risen from the dead. I mean, that's part of the dynamism of the Bible in Australian cultural history. Meredith Lake, thank you very much indeed. Well, last section in this, Glenn Lockery, to you. What's your response? Um, I'm not a biblical scholar, nor am I a historian. I'm just a little Aboriginal priest, and this is how I read the Bible. I read it from the point of view of how Aboriginal people and how I as an Aboriginal person understand the cycle of life 
I try and view the Bible from from that perspective, seeing Jesus as as an elder, seeing Jesus as a man of two countries, seeing Jesus as somebody who was born under a tree, dies on a tree. And I, I don't see Jesus in the same way in terms of having died for my sins because that's not something that's within our culture, that kind of concept. Well, Glenn Lockery, you actually read the Bible with a Wiradjuri word in mind. Yeah, Winagara, which means um, to, to uh, listen, hear, and then reflect from within the, the place in which I am in the natural things. But how does that work when the Bible is supposed to be universal and say, you know, isn't it, you tell me, doesn't, isn't the Bible supposed to say exactly the same thing on Wiradjuri country as it's supposed to say in Pyongyang, North Korea? Well, I think that's a very interesting, very interesting way of thinking about it because I don't see God as being non-contextual. And in Aboriginal culture, we're a very high context group of people. We read things through our own context in our own space and the way and the traditions that we have. And I think it's important to value the fact that through 65,000 years, we developed a very sophisticated and nuanced relationship with the transcendent and with creation. And we are able to then engage with this story, not the same as everybody else. And the idea that Matthew or Luke or John could have even conceived of what you have and had. No, it's not possible. So we don't. I guess that, you know, Dorothy's probably having um, conniptions with my comments, but the, the idea for me is that we should read this scripture and read this story and read the Bible within the context of the land that we're on. So we take both feet off the ship and get connected here in this space. And I read it from that perspective. What would this look like if this was explained orally over the years by Aboriginal people. What would this story look like? Reverend Dorothy Lee. I think that um, just just calm Glenn's mind down so he's not worrying about me having conniptions here. Um, I think that uh, the Bible always has to be read in context. And one of the interesting things that I've been working on is what happens when women read the Bible. And I think something different happens and I think that what Glenn is talking about is what happens when Indigenous people read the Bible in their context. The Bible arises out of context. The, the sort that Glenn is talking about that comes out particularly in his beautiful art um, is very much another way of looking at the Bible that, that we can all, that we all benefit from. It's, it's another angle on the mountain. And it's not only is it okay to do it, it's essential that we, we are aware of our context as we read, and that this can be something really positive. Things can be revealed that were not uh, realised before. And just last word on this, Dr Meredith Lake. What I would say about this whole idea of, you know, how important is context, more than 90% of churchgoers in Australia think the Bible is the word of God, but less than a quarter of them think that means you should read and apply it literally, whatever that would mean. The contextual approach to scripture is probably the most dominant approach of the average Australian Christian in the pews. I think there's a kind of openness that can be easily overlooked or 
undersold by, by people who aren't familiar with that world. And it's actually one of the things that makes Australian Christianity a little bit different in tone and temper to what we might see in a place like the US, where literalist interpretations of the Bible, I mean, surveys have shown, are much more widespread among people who hold their religion very tightly. And so I think it's worth asking, how is this person engaging with the text and what context do they do that from? Um, It's not just a matter of their own personal perspective, whether that's gender or race or class, whether it's the ground under their feet. There's a kind of hermeneutic sophistication even among, I would say, among most Australian Christians. And if you think those questions are difficult to answer in English, what happens if you have to add in the complexity of translation into Creole as well? (laughs) We'll look at that up next. RN, God forbid. In spite of centuries of complex and troubled relations between the church and Indigenous Australians, it was only in 2007 that the Bible was first translated into an Australian Indigenous language. The, I will do my best, Holy Bible, I think it's pronounced, is in the Creole Indigenous language. It took 27 years to compile, and today it remains the only Indigenous language to have a full Bible translation. Well, Margaret Micken is a Creole-speaking linguist and translator, and she'll explain the interpretive decisions that had to be made. But first, ABC's Jack Kerr explains Creole. Though Indigenous, it's actually a brand new language. Creole developed about 100 years ago at a mission on the Roper River, where people from nearly a dozen different language groups came together. Now, the kids had an interesting time trying to communicate because they didn't have a language in common. They were hearing the English from the teachers and the mission staff, the pigeon from the stockman, and then they had their own languages. So, as kids often do, they developed their own language. This at a time when many other Australian languages are dying off. And eventually they got to the stage where when they had family they started using this new language and so it was no longer a pidgin, but it had become a full language because they were using it to communicate their everyday needs. And now Creole even has its own translation of the Bible, thanks to Micken and other religiously inclined linguists. This is John 3, 16, or at least some of it. God been like him everybody that much. Him and Jandam him one son, blung a die, blung all about. Or what about this one? Yahweh in that probably good one, Stockman. What is going on Uh, in that sentence? (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd is what most English speakers know. So Yahweh is the name of God. We have retained that. And then up here in the north of Australia, we don't have sheep. And so the nearest best illustration that people understand is Stockman. You're right. So this sentence again, Yahweh bin him. Yahweh him, that probably good one Stockman. So Yahweh is that very good, the best Stockman. This has been a wonderful thing because they had felt put down because of their Creole. And so this has given them a voice in a way and something to be proud of because they do have an Aboriginal language. They have their own Aboriginal language. 
And that's Creole linguist Margaret Micken with documentary maker and former Territorian himself, Jack Kerr. We'll put a link to an extended version of that conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, Glenn Lockery, you're a Wiradjuri man, um, so I expect those words you heard from 4,000-odd kilometres away didn't uh, mean much to you, though I, in terms of um, translation, but I bet you had an emotional connection to them. Oh, it is. It, um, it is wonderful to be able to have a language which people from diverse nations can, can communicate with each other. Uh, the sadness for me is that we don't have the opportunity to do that into the original languages of the people and we've had to develop something new for them. In our own um, Wiradjuri landscape, uh, Dr Stan Grant has done excellent work in developing an Aboriginal language dictionary and, and processes which helps us to learn more about our own language. I was thinking this morning, you know, how how did the story of a whale eating somebody be dealt with inside of Aboriginal languages because we don't have words for whales, those of us who don't live on the water. And that itself is a language issue because it wasn't a whale earlier on, it was a fish in earlier translations. Yeah, but if it was a fish big enough to eat somebody, he wouldn't be swimming in the Darling River. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we go to, to touch the scriptures, you know, what would that story look like if we were to tell it within the context of a small community, small language group? What would they have done with that story? What kind of things would they have done with it to make it uh, an appropriate way to tell that story. Yes, indeed. And Reverend Dorothy Lee, what do you think should be the primary purpose of Bible translation? Well, that's, that's a, I mean, I don't think there is just one purpose for Bible translation. And it's always worth bearing in mind that the Bible was, did not come to, down to us in English. The, the earliest form of English is Anglo-Saxon. We do have a version of the Gospels from the Lindisfarne Gospels, but until the 16th century, we don't really get a, a proper English translation of the Bible. So we're one and a half millennia late in just getting the second or third or fourth hand accounts that were written in ancient Greek. Yes, that's right. And a lot more new manuscripts have been discovered too, so which were not available to the translators of the, the King James Bible. But I was going to say that there are two things in translation. There are two ways you can go. One is to try and get at a more literal translation. You can't entirely have a literal translation because it would be gobbledygook, but you can have something that's more, somewhat more on the spectrum of literal. And then at the other end, you can have a translation that's more uh, what we might call dynamic equivalence. And that reference, you know, to how to translate something like Shepherd is an example of dynamic equivalence. I think myself, we need both translations. We need, uh, for study purposes, something that's a bit closer to the original, to the, to the Greek, to the Hebrew, to the Aramaic. But at the same time, we also need the dynamic equivalence, something that's a little bit closer to paraphrase. So there are those two forms of impetus in translation, and I think both have their place. I can see, Dr Meredith Flake, that Dorothy is right. Uh, everything has its place. But if we're just wanting to look, I mean, you, uh, your field is cultural history. If we want to know about cultural history, and I don't mean this to be rude, wouldn't Wikipedia be the best? We could just flick through every page. We'd, if we had enough time, we could become super experts. 
What is so interesting to me that there's still the really live question of what do we do with this text? How do we respond to it? What does it look like in life? And, well, Dorothy was talking about women who've read the Bible in often subversive ways. Someone like Louisa Lawson, who was um, a very important suffragist here in New South Wales, who wasn't a a straight up and down churchgoer by the time she was involved in feminist politics. She was a Republican, but she read a verse like Galatians 3.28, which is from one of Paul's letters, one of the early parts of the New Testament, where it says, you know, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, no free, no male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And she took that to be galvanising, really, for the whole movement for women's suffrage and for the extension of women's rights, not just in politics, but in all kinds of spheres. And I think the way the Bible's taken up for all kinds of political causes, as well as in devotional life, is, is another layer, if you like, to add to the complexity. There were slave owners who were certain that the Bible gave them the cosmic authority to own slaves. They were as certain as they were of anything they could be. And there are equally people who were precisely as certain that they were ordained to emancipate them as well by the same book and everything in between, yes? I mean, that just goes to show that if we just want to somehow reduce the discussion to what is the Bible and what is in it, we're not really going to get to the heart of how this complex library of texts, how it's become part of the way people try and change their societies, transform their lives. I mean, that example, structural racism, personal racism, yields so many examples of disagreements, really, in what the implications of the Bible might be. But in a place like this, where the white Australia policy was so dominant for so many decades, you find people outside the churches who are actually publishing pamphlets drawing on this idea that we find in the book of Acts that God made all people of one blood, so we should ditch it. You know, the white Australia policy, it's a heresy. And it's interesting that it's people who aren't churchgoers, aren't Christians, who are mounting these kinds of biblical arguments in opposition to the racist assumptions of the majority of people. On our end, it is, God forbid, up next a very special treat. We have the legendary John Cleary. The Bible is the world's best-selling book, hands down, even though most people already know how it ends. Spoiler alert, how is that possible? The Guinness Book of World Records estimates more than 5 billion copies have been printed. In the West, Australia particularly, fewer and fewer people identify as Christian. Well, Greg Clark is the former CEO of the Bible Society. Why does Greg make the case that biblical literacy is still important today for the religious and the non religious. Well, here we've found an interview with him and the wonderful John Cleary, formerly from Sunday Nights. The scriptures, the Christian scriptures, Hebrew Bible, we call it the Holy Bible, have had a huge impact on the shaping of our culture. And at the moment, there is a swindle because we've somehow been convinced or convinced ourselves that you can cut the Bible out of the educational process and still emerge at the other end with some basic grasp of who we are and where we've come from. So here, you're not arguing in this instance for the use of the Bible as a religious text to promote the cause of a particular faith. You are, in this instance arguing for the Bible and its role in understanding who we are and where we've come from. Yes, I'd like to say that the Bible 
is a text that belongs to everyone. It's a public text and it, it should be treated as an educational core element. But I'm also saying that's not the end of the story. For so many people around the world, for those who are in the Jewish faith, Christian faith, and indeed for, for many Muslims, the Bible does even more than that. But it at least does that. It at least contributes to our understanding of who we are and where we've come from across a very broad range of disciplines. So to suggest that we, we shouldn't have it as a very basic part of learning what English literature is about, learning about art history, learning about the background to science is simply just stick your head in the sand in terms of educational credibility. The reason I ask the question or pose it in that way is does that go in part to explaining why the Bible has been cut out? That is, people have come to see it as merely a polemical document used by a group of people to flog their particular view of the world, one which has no necessary connection to the realities of science and the modern world, and, and thus it's utterly irrelevant. And in, in some ways the religious community bears some responsibility for that. Well, I think uh, the religious community, to put that hat on for a moment, we've kept the Bible too private. It should have been a public document all along. And so, yes, the churches are to blame because I guess we've kept the doors too firmly shut. Let's start with uh, Australian popular culture. You mentioned at the start we can't even understand who we are without some understanding of the Bible. Well, give us some examples. In, in well, I was just downstairs in the ABC bookshop flicking through Tim Winton's novel and the first few pages are setting up the story of this middle-aged man whose life's falling apart. It's about uh, Pentecostal attitudes in his workplace, uh, you know, the spirit, guilt, sin, freedom, these, these themes that are given Christian language at the beginning of the novel. Now, he doesn't quote the Bible and give you a, a reference at the back of it, but without a basic knowledge of the worldview that he's writing within, you, you're going to struggle to keep up with Tim Winton. Greg Clark, former CEO of the Bible Society in Australia, speaking there with John Cleary, and we'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Uh, Professor Dorothy Lee, Greg Clark from the Bible Society, he's saying that if we don't understand the Bible, we'll have trouble understanding the books of Tim Winton. I mean, it was a serious and well-made point, but are there more pressing reasons for non-Christians to read this book? Well... <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I think we need to know, to know the Bible because it's part of, of certainly Western culture, although the Bible itself is not Western, and we need to emphasise that again and again. But it's certainly part of Western literature. It would be very hard to understand Shakespeare, certainly Milton, any of the classics without a knowledge of the Bible, including people who didn't particularly accept it, like George Eliot. What about what about when Greg Clark suggested to teach science without also thinking about the role religion had to play in its origins is to bury your head in the educational sand? That's a very confronting statement in the 21st century. Well, I think it's true. I, I think religion itself, and not just Christianity, but religion itself, is just ignored. I mean, I've written articles in the conversation and got comments afterwards saying, how dare you write about religion? That's entirely private. I mean, it's part of the reason that, that Muslims feel themselves under such persecution in parts of this country. It's funny, you, it's funny you mentioned Muslims and we're talking about the relationship between religion and science. You know, Dorothy, there's always, every time there's a terrorist attack, why don't Muslims say sorry? You know, this 
perpetual depressive dynamic. I remember there was one cycle and the Muslims all around the world said sorry for calculus. They held up signs in social media posts of solidarity uh, because, of course, calculus came straight out of Islam, the religion. (laughs) And and I remember, I'm old enough to remember that the the, the terrorists we were all terrified of were Irish, you know, um, either Protestant or Catholic. You you needn't be that old, Dorothy. You've you've not lost, you've not a wrinkle on your beautiful face. (laughs) Thank you very much, James. But I I think it's an important point um, that uh, Greg Clark is making, that that religion is not private. It's it's actually part of the public, the marketplace, you know. It's it's part of it. Many people are believing at all sorts of levels. There are Buddhists, there's Hindus. I mean, there are many of us who are religious and who feel ourselves not persecuted, Certainly not, although I think Muslims come closest to it. But but we do feel ourselves somewhat marginalised in discourse, which is why programmes like yours, James, is so important. Hmm. Well, I flattered um, and and am um, blushing. So I can quickly go to Dr Meredith Lake uh, to avoid the problem. Meredith. Oh, I'm only going to sing the praises of the ABC's religion unit, James. <laughs> I mean, thank God for the ABC. Now, what I was going to say is that I think biblical literacy, I mean, there are huge conversations that need to be held open about what education might be appropriate. Um, I think I think that's a very complex issue, actually, perhaps more so than Greg Clark was saying. But the reason that biblical literacy, I think, can be useful for, you know, somebody who couldn't really care less whether the Gospels are a true account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus or not is that it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, those were the Christians and they did that, so we better wash our hands of that by declaring ourselves to be post-Christian. We still live with the legacies of those interpretations. But the way the Bible has been used, because so many people have taken it as a word from God, as having a kind of sacred authority in their lives, that, that matters to what options are open to us now, what we have on the table. And whether we want to, you know, change the way we do life together as a community, whether we want to affirm some of the things that we've inherited from the past, I think kind of knowing a bit about um, biblical literacy and I think a broader religious literacy is only going to be an aid to that kind of conversation. Dr. Meredith Lake, thank you very much indeed. You are on God Forbid. Well, last word on this before the quiz. Let's turn to Reverend Glenn Lockery. Glenn, your take. My take is it's very important that we have an understanding of uh, the religious inputs into our culture and how we become who we are and how we are who we are now is based on an interpretation of the Bible that came into this country. It is also now impacted by those who've come later and their interpretations and understandings. And we do need to be able to understand that. But I also would argue that one of the things missing in these discussions about uh, religion is the Aboriginal way of seeing things, how we understand the cycle of life, the the kind of custodial ethic which could be uh, talked about in terms of the golden rule, love others as you, you love yourself the Good Samaritan story, and we have to balance it. Yes, you know, much of what I've done throughout my life has been based about interpretations of some of the scriptures, 
you know, working on the streets with street kids and all of those kind of things came out of that kind of process. But it also came out of my understanding that uh, as an Aboriginal person, I'm responsible for everything that's here. And in navigating that balance between your two worlds, uh, Glenn Lockery, you know, you're an Indigenous man in a mainstream Australian world. Do you find challenges from all directions? Not just the, you know, one side telling you to assimilate, but another side affirming your Indigenous heritage, but you're always, here's the Indigenous priest, here's the Indigenous artist, and so many others have this. Let's welcome the Indigenous doctor, the Indigenous lawyer. You're not. Who you are is Glenn. You happen to be a great artist, you happen to be an Indigenous Wiradjuri man, but you are Glenn Lockery. Absolutely. And your job on earth, what's more, is not to serve the left's need to have its guilt assuaged or comforted. Your job is to be you, free of prejudice or anything else for that matter. Look, that's very true, James, and it's something that I deal with on a daily basis that um, I, I, I get asked to come and talk to people and people refer to me as an Aboriginal priest and I go, yes, I'm Aboriginal and I'm a priest but that's not who I am. Um, it's People have to label you as almost human in some sense. You're not really a real priest, but you're an Aboriginal priest. Uh, and I go, yeah, but that means I'm a real priest as well, but I'm a real Aboriginal as well. People have to find... Your comment about a, you know, dealing with guilt is a, a very important one. Um, I get the feeling every time people ask me to talk is that I have to take all my clothes off and show the scars so people can see what it's like to be an Aboriginal person and then they can do something with that within their own psyche. But we face it every day and it's not something that's going to go away. It will go away when we learn to divide, that is to say non-Indigenous Australia learns to divide the emotions of regret and shame. Yes, well, the, the the concept of original sin is important in this because the original sin of this country is that we took it away from Aboriginal people and we replaced their ways of seeing with ours. And we still have yet to come to grips with that. Reconciliation isn't about Aboriginal people. It's about non-Aboriginal people reconciling what they've done within themselves before they have the conversation with us. It is about uh, overcoming the guilt that if you take something from somebody else, somebody might take it from you. So there is all that guilt that goes there. So having, you know, the first Aboriginal canon at the cathedral in 141 years is a wonderful. Because in 2021, you were appointed canon of the Great St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. Congratulations. Thank you. But why did it take 141 years? And now, of course, because it's taken 141 years, you're going to forever be, hey, the Indigenous canon. Look yep. at the Indigenous canon, Glenn Lockery. So what you think has been this victory is now going to be this albatross anchor around your neck. Yeah, that depends what I do with it and how I respond to people and how I, I talk about it. Um, and, and it really uh, is about helping people to understand that you know, I'm a Kenan there not because I'm an Aboriginal but because I'm an artist and just I so happen to be an Aboriginal as well. But it is it is a difficulty. We face it all the time. People look at you and go, ah, oh, but you don't look Aboriginal or you have to, to prove 
who you are, right? And I think we have to understand we are meant to be real people and we are human. We don't need Christianity or the Bible to make us real. But if we choose to take those things as part of us, that adds to us, but it doesn't make us real. Well, thank you very much, Glenn Lockery. On our end, it is God forbid. Why don't we turn to the quiz? Wits end. Wits end. Yes, it's Wits end. The God forbid quiz is always we start with the buzzers. Now, Reverend Glenn Lockery, your buzzer is the worst form of punishment that exists in your family. Test your buzzer. No Bible stories for you tonight. <laughs> oh, what a a cruel man. And Reverend Dorothy Lee, this is the sound of your male colleagues at the university who get passed over for promotion every time because you're so much better at the University of Divinity. Test your buzzer. Oh, my God. Oh, well, there's always next year. And uh, Meredith Lake, your buzzer is the sound you would have heard after the last round of radio ratings if ABC was a commercial station... Because Soul Search, well, let's just hear the sound. Yeah, Soul Search did really well. <laughs> um, first question, an easy question for, you know, Bible scholars. According to the two-source hypothesis, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke are adapted from which two documents? Oh, my God. Mark's Gospel and Q. Uh, that, that's correct, Dorothy. Q. Who's Q? Is that from James Bond? No, it's not from James Bond. It's just a word that they use. It's just from the German word for source that both Matthew and Luke used. Next question. Marcion of Sinope was an early Gnostic Christian theologian who was later declared a heretic. According to Marcion, what should be excluded from the Bible? Oh, my God. The Old Testament. Exactly correct, Dorothy Lee. The Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible should be just kicked out. Uh, a short story guy he was, you know. Leave him wanting more. Mm. Next question. When the 2013 miniseries The Bible first aired, there was a controversy uh, that the depiction of Satan looked suspiciously like which US president? <laughs> Look, I'll just say it. Barack Obama, the producers of the series, Roma Downey and Mark Burnett said, quote, this is utter nonsense. We have nothing but respect and love for our president, who is a fellow Christian. This obviously during the time of his uh, presidency. Follow-up question, true or false, there was a subsequent novelisation of the Bible miniseries, which probably... True. Makes it the Bible, doesn't it? I don't know. Except the new one's a novel when Christians hold the old one isn't. I'll go for false. I'm going to go for true. I mean, the market for this stuff, especially among, you know, white US evangelicals, is just so huge. I'm sure somebody must have tried to turn it around that way. Am I right? <laughs> well, we like to finish the show on God Forbid with a market update and Meredith Lake has delivered it. True is the answer. This TV serial was <laughs> turned into a novel, a story of God and of all of us, a novel based on the epic TV miniseries, The Bible. And it debuted at 27 on the New York Times bestseller list, which proves, you know, everything's been written at least once before, I suppose. Uh, and with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Um, but it's been a great joy 
Dr. Meredith Lake has a trillion more stories in her award-winning book, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. Uh, and, of course, she's our wonderful companion presenting IRN's Soul Search as well. Uh, Reverend uh, Professor Dorothy Lee is the Stewart Research Professor at the University of Divinity's Trinity College Theological School, an academic expert in the Gospels and also an Anglican Associate Priest herself at St Mary's, North Melbourne. Thank you, Dorothy, for being on the show. I look forward to getting you back soon. Oh, lovely. I really enjoyed it very much. Thank you, James. You're welcome. And Reverend Glenn Lockery, it's been a joy to meet and have you on the program. Well, thank you, James. It's been great to be here. I felt a little bit overawed by the, my two fellow colleagues today, but it's been wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you. Well, if you want to see Glenn Lockery's beautiful art and much more, go to glennlockery.com. We'll put a link to that on the God Forbid website at Radio National. Um, And Meredith Lake, thank you so much for being on board today. Thanks so much for having me, James, and such a delight to meet you, Glenn and Dorothy. All the best. Great to uh, be able to talk to you. I loved what you said and I loved what Glenn said too, so it was thoroughly enjoyable. Good stuff. Meredith, the author of The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History, and of course our companion at RN Soul Search. Last time we looked at the Hebrew Scriptures, also known as the Old Testament of the Bible. You can find that episode on our website. But for now, this has been the end of God Forbid. You can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app, Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. It's been God Forbid. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.